There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, this is Tyler. And this is Casey. And you're listening to The Element Podcast. Is it a video? What is happening, all you people? I am just sitting here on the shawls of Lake Fork, looking at a deer mount staring me down. You people. <laughs> uh, it is the time of year where we hide inside as much as we can. Uh, I worked outside until about 11 today, and then it, after that, it is AC time. I'm here with Tyler Jones, of course, and we have been discussing all types of stuff today. We have been talking about... Uh, all the cute clothes we wear, mm-hmm. all the awesome pieces of technology we have these days. Mm-hmm. But uh, really, um, I say it kind of jokingly, but at the same time, uh, we are trying to push and get some new merchandise together for us all to wear for lifestyle stuff for this fall. So be looking for some of that stuff to come out pretty soon. Well, uh, I shouldn't say pretty soon. Sometime before the first day of fall. Before deer season. Yeah. When is the first day of fall? Is Man, it? in Texas, it's about November 26th. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> growing up, I um, kind of had this idea of like uh, a winter that started like in November and went all the way until like February. Mm-hmm. But fall didn't really happen. Yeah. And I think it's still that way, really. Fall's supposed to be this time where it's like cool outside and there's orange and red and yellow leaves falling. But really, everything just turns brown. Because <laughs> yeah. it dies immediately. It's, yeah, it's actually just uh, concealed by the drought. I think it'd be some, <laughs> spring, summer, drought, fall, thanks kind of what, or winter, rather. Yeah. But. Anyways, we're going to kind of get some stuff together, maybe come up with a couple cool new t-shirts, expand our hats and all yep. that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, really, it's just so that we get to wear some cooler stuff and yep. maybe y'all can reap the benefits if you want to. I'm but, actually going to embroider. I got two blank hats. 
them to get embroidered, and I'm going to get them done like nobody else can get. Nobody else can get those bats. Blats, yeah, blats. So before we go on with more nonsense, we do have a pretty cool guest for the podcast today. He's just kind of a, I don't know. It's a good Texas and elsewhere too, just kind of deer podcast, right? Uh, Tyler, who are you talking to? Oh, Slick Mick Hellickson. <laughs> Slick Mick. I bet you that was his name running around on the King Ranch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mick is a, uh, uh esteemed wildlife biologist and, and uh, is really into growing trophy whitetails. That's the thing he does. He's got, he's done in Iowa, does it in Texas, does it all over. So, uh, has some cool kind of historic information about the King Ranch, which if you're unfamiliar with it, it's a giant, almost one million acre ranch in uh, kind of south Gulf Coast, Texas, that grows some huge deer. Uh, so They we'll- said, I, I heard that if you took the fence and stretched it out from the King Ranch northward, it would go to Boston. That's eastward. Well, <laughs> it's east and north. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where would it go? Winnipeg, if it went straight north? I have no clue. <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> Winnipeg sounds like a made-up place. <laughs> it is. Good. Yeah. 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 For sure. It's that, actually, you remember those Coke commercials where the polar bears and the penguins all played together? Yeah. That was Winnipeg, those, those still come around <laughs> every Christmas. Yeah. yeah. I don't watch TV, so I don't know. That's all right. <laughs> I had, actually, I don't know that because uh, three years ago was the last time I had a TV, yeah. too. But I just figured that they're still coming around. Yeah. I don't know. It could be canceled. Who knows? <laughs> At this point, I, right. I can't trust anything. That's right, man. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to divulge too much further mm-hmm. into the cancellation stuff. But <laughs> <laughs> anyways, um, there is um, what some would consider a national holiday approaching soon. Mm. Personally, uh, in my family, we try our best to not celebrate about near anything unless our family makes us. So, um, is this because you're, you don't like black pepper on your potatoes? That's right. Or? That's right, man. <laughs> I don't know. It just, holidays just are just goofy to me sometimes. I just don't understand the concept of like appreciating your family more on certain days. Uh, yeah. And, I don't either. And like, I don't, first of all, this is a whole nother deal and probably not in the hunting spectrum of podcasts, but like, I don't know if we're going to do Santa, man. I yeah. really don't. We don't. Uh, we have, and I won't go into why. Yeah, no, we don't. don't. We uh, we have enlightened our two kids for sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I don't. Uh, yeah. Anyways. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> I thought uh, you were going July Fourth here, but you're actually going a different holiday. No. Aren't you? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. July Fourth is 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 what it is. Uh, either way, I don't like to celebrate that because it's so hot on July 4th. Y'all sing that one uh, song, God Bless America, (laughs) in church too, right? Oh, my goodness. It drives me crazy. (laughs) Crazy. I lose my mind. Uh, They don't ask me to leave those days. Uh, But (laughs) anyways, uh, the one that is fast approaching, many of you listening probably will participate in or reap the benefits of is Father's Day, right? So all you dads out there, I didn't say dad bods, but nope. dads, those are two different things. Um, there is a holiday approach, and I guess it's this Sunday, right? I think so. I don't really know for sure. Yeah, I believe but, it is. Um, one of the things that happens around Father's Day is that uh, brands in the outdoor world uh, like to run sales and stuff. And um, it's a cool thing because it's an opportunity for you to get a break on some stuff. And uh, a couple of the folks we work with um, are doing that deal. So on X, 
is doing a 30% off. Uh, is it just the premium or the uh, 50 state or is it all of it? It is a 30% off code. Uh, yeah. D-A-D, dad. Dad. We'll Not save. number one dad, just dad. That's right. right? Yeah, dad. Yeah. I don't misspell it, spell it backwards, nothing like that. <laughs> save uh, new subscribers 30%. Yeah, so, okay. So you says. have to be a new subscriber. So Looks if you like haven't it. subscribed to Onyx, head over to their website, check out what they got going on, and you'll get 30% off of... Uh, the Hunt app. That doesn't include the surfing app and all the other yeah, apps they yeah, have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, don't don't get on the, uh, you know, nationalshellfish.org Onyx <laughs> app or whatever it might be. Uh, but <laughs> the, the Onyx Hunt app is where you need to be. Yeah. All right. And that, guys, honestly... You hear us talk about it all the time, whether we're, you know, giving a direct plug or just using it daily because that's what we do. Literally, during this podcast with Mick, I was on Onyx, okay? <laughs> I had to figure out where exactly the King Ranch borders were. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's it's super helpful in this state or wherever, you know, we do the 50-state deal. And, uh, man, I mean, it is nice to be able to just turn the Michigan layer on when you go to scouting Michigan, you know? I bet I'm on Onyx at least 300 days a year. <laughs> at least, dude. <laughs> at the very least, for sure. Uh, I I would be right there with you. And uh, the ones that I'm not, it's probably because I don't have cell phone service, so yeah. I don't really. And there's a cure for that, too. You can save offline maps, so yeah. there you go. Uh, another one is uh, Cruiser Saddles. Cruiser. So uh, Yeah, so they've got a 10% uh, off for their dad, Father's Day. Uh, the promo code is, and I don't know if this is all caps or caps sensitive, but it, it looks like it's all caps. It says Cruiser for Dad. How do you spell Cruiser, KC? Mm, C U No, no C R U C R U Z R. But it's not Put you. you on the spot. It's ugh. yeah. It's the it's yeah. the, it's the double dots above the U. It looks like a smiley face. Yeah. Yeah. C-R-U-Z-R for the number four dad, and that'll get you 10% off wow. the entire store, which they actually have uh, just got a bunch of the new uh, platforms Seeker in. Platforms. Seeker platforms. So they're like hot off the press shipping those things out <laughs> right are. now. They are. They are. And they I, are bad to the bone. You know, Cruiser has some cool hats. Um, so if you're... Cats. Yeah, the cats. <laughs> if, if you're not wanting to... If you already bought you a nice saddle or platform, you can go get a hat over there for fairly uh, inexpensive that looks real good. But I don't know if they thought about this, but I have another design they can do. So I know they kind of have like the bold print or whatever for their um, Hmm. logo. But what if they went with like a a script pencil, Mm -hmm. but then for the U, they put an actual smiley face? (laughs) Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll talk yeah. to Chad and let him know when it's time to rebrand. That's yeah. what they're going to do. That's like the Forrest Gump deal, you know, <laughs> that's it, man. where he made the smiley face deal. That's it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, um, I think it's a good idea. Good. Man. I'm, I'm glad you like that. I do. Uh, <laughs> You're anyways, into the merch thing. You're I really am. Dude, I'm thinking about that stuff right now. Um, so we don't have a ton going on in the white tail world right now. I'm going to be completely honest with you guys. Oh. Mm, mm. If I am being honest, we have a lot going on, but it's all digital. We are really busy planning hunts, really busy just working out logistics. We're going to head up and do Map Scout Challenge stuff. Challenge, I say it that way because we're headed to (laughs) Pennsylvania, Ohio, maybe Indiana, and Michigan. And uh, we're going to go up there and just invade all y'all's territory and scout some whitetails out. Um, If you have questions or anything or you want us to look at a spot or whatever and you live in that area, let us know. Uh, But uh, we've been planning for that, really excited about that. We are planning all the uh, 
element crew hunts and stuff. We got some stuff going early season and stuff going mid season, late season, and all this stuff going mm-hmm. right now. But um, in the field is not real busy. Tyler, well, you and I have kind of determined that summertime trail cameras can be fun but not very rewarding when it comes to actually translating it into taking deer. Mm-hmm. We were discussing this this morning. We had trail camera video of a buck eating persimmons from late August or early, early September or something last year. And then we got, or actually I had an, an encounter with this deer uh, about two miles from there in December. Mm-hmm. So that can just show you how, I mean, it doesn't do you any good. How much you can waste your time. <laughs> That's right. How much you can sweat and waste your time and get trail cameras out in the summer. Now, given it's fun, I love getting those summertime pictures. If you have your own private property, it could be a little bit different than that too if you have more holding capabilities. Or I, I, I'll, I'll be frank, like the stuff I learn from putting trail cameras out is way more valuable sometimes than – the actual photo data that we get back. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like when we're out sweating, stomping around in late July, putting out cameras or something, uh, I feel like we should, we learn a lot about properties at that time of year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then you also um, get immunity to uh, ticks. And, 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 <laughs> all this stuff. Forgot about that. <laughs> That's right, man. Uh, that this, was the last coronavirus. First, this ain't the first pandemic, yo. <laughs> That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. crazy thing is they didn't shut it down that time. I you know. know. How about Put us in so indoors for sure during Zika. <laughs> That's right. Because you know I mean? mosquitoes is real. Yeah, yeah, for real. You can't mask and just hide <laughs> one of those. You can actually, yeah. you can actually see them. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm. I think you and uh, HTH are going out of state pretty soon to hang cameras, aren't you? Yeah, I think I'm going to go in spirit. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, spirit. HGH is, is that very, the spirit of the wild? Yeah, that's right. It's inside of me. <laughs> and uh, this is a clown show. He's uh, <laughs> he's getting real excited about putting out some cameras up north, and uh, I don't blame him. And I don't know. He's if, still if, young enough to drink uh, regular Coke. I guess so. You know. Yeah. I um, at another time and place I might go do that, but mm-hmm. right now maybe I'm overly confident. But I feel like. That is not going to be the best place or best way for me to spend my time, efforts, babysitter time, all that during the summer, mm-hmm. going and doing something like that. But hey, you know, um, I might, like I said, I might be overconfident in my abilities to kill a deer in the fall. So who knows? Mm-hmm. But uh, I feel like um, spending time understanding deer habitat, understanding deer movement patterns, understanding maps and how all that stuff correlates i don't know we just we just feel pretty confident about our ability to map scout a place and figure out a place to go hunt as opposed to go in there and stomp around and get just sweat nasty you Mm -hmm. know so yep i know that's how i feel too man i'm like i don't know maybe i'm just getting that mature buck belly (laughs) you know but like i'm just trying to i'm just trying to think uh it's pretty hot out there. Like I literally, you said you were out till about eleven today. I was out for eleven minutes and I sweated <laughs> so bad, dude. It is nasty out yeah, there. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm the same way, man. I think like, you know, I feel like when I look at stuff on the map, I can I can write stuff off pretty quick mm-hmm. and and start to find things. And I'm not you know, I don't know, man. I had a good year last year. Great year. But like 
maybe this year I don't. I don't know. Mm-hmm. We'll see. But I do. I mean, I feel pretty confident, and we're going to hunt a lot. So, more days you're in stand, the more chances you're going right, to probably man. have. So, and I think that <clears throat> if you just, I, I really like what you said about crossing places off. You know, uh, if you sometimes if you can sit here and look at a map on a computer screen, you can tell yourself, okay, here's a one hour radius, here's a two hour radius, whatever it might be. I can hunt anything in this general area. You can really narrow it down to some really good stuff. Mm-hmm. Or as opposed to when you drive somewhere, like to go scout or hang cameras or whatever, it's kind of hard to get much more than, you know, 30 minutes from the place you drive to, you know, because mm-hmm. you, I mean, you know how it goes. Oh, we're just going to hop in here and, you know, hang a camera right quick. Four hours later, you're walking out <laughs> and you're tired and you're looking for a water burger, you know, mm-hmm. like it's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a much different deal. But I think that we do not need to undervalue boots on the ground. I mean, it's a thing that we're going to do a ton of this mm-hmm. year, but I think that, uh, and I'm not calling Hunter dumb or anything in this deal mm-hmm. as well but i think that um what i would like for y'all to take from this at least is that the map scouting you do can help you out so much when it comes to actually spending your time wisely once you get to the boots on the ground mm-hmm. section i think we spent a lot of time on the ground in 2016 17 18 we did and I think that we I mean, we learned a lot, right? But I think we also um, now could learn a lot from the maps before we did that mm-hmm. that would have saved us some time mm-hmm. um, that we couldn't have learned from the maps back then because we mm-hmm. just weren't quite as versed in digital yeah. mapping, you know? Yeah. And truth be told, probably like <clears throat> if I had to move to South Carolina or something... I might need to go do yeah. more of the boot stuff again. Oh, yeah, for because sure. Because it's different, or like, you know, Maine or something, you yeah. know. But there's still some stuff that, you know, you can kind of have that uh, applies across the board. Yeah, but. yeah. I mean, and and to be honest, like, I I don't hardly regret any walking around that happens before about March in mm-hmm. Texas. Like, I have a blast walking in the woods in January and February. Especially with 20-gauge. Yes, <laughs> yes. I love it. Like, it's yeah. one of my favorite things to do. But uh, this time of year, um, I have lots of regrets, especially from 2017 <laughs> or whatever that year was. We did so much hanging yeah. in the summer. Yeah. 19 was pretty bad, too. Was it? Well, we didn't do a ton of it, but we did that one big day where we like really got sick. Oh, that was like dangerous, dude. Yeah. It was like 98 and extremely humid. And it got like, it was the weirdest thing, but it was like probably that I was having the most difficulty breathing because of like heat and heat stress, I guess, mm-hmm. that I've ever had. And I'm straight up been on 140 degree turf, you know, working yeah. out in a college football. We, uh, we were in probably about as good a shape as you and I have been in together at that point in time yeah, we too. Were. Cause that was like August and we're fixing to head to the Gila on the 15th of September, you know, mm-hmm. so we were getting it Yeah, and maybe that's part of it too. Maybe we were already a little bit exhausted, but yeah, uh, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. It's uh, it can definitely, I don't know. We're just trying to spend our time wisely because right. uh, the older we get year by year, the wiser we get, hopefully. <laughs> and uh, hopefully it'll I help us. I have some relapses from time to time. Yeah, but. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Me too. When I, yeah. But uh, I think that uh, it's good to learn lessons and it's good to uh, be able to kind of draw inferences from other people's experiences. And that's kind of one of the reasons I'm excited to get Mick on the podcast today because he's been around big deer a ton mm-hmm. and he's got to hunt them a bunch too. And like, 
what a better guy to talk to than a guy who's studied them and hunted them. You know, like um, most of us, are, you and I included, we have to find a place to get income elsewhere so that we can support the, the things that we love to do. He figured out how to, like, get paid to research deer <laughs> so that he can kill them pretty much, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, uh, anyways, he's got a lot of cool stuff to talk about. This really is just kind of a chat and kind of a um, – we didn't really have a lot of direction as to, like, we're going to talk about book betting, you know, mm-hmm. with, with this podcast. But I, I really enjoyed it because, you know, it's just like a historic thing with the, the King Ranch work that he's done and then, of course, like talking to anybody who's – put their hands on a 190 a couple times in their life it's mm-hmm. probably got something to learn from them <laughs> yeah, yeah for real so you got anything else no i don't right. think so let's holler wanna... at mick all right so now on the phone i've got dr mick hellickson mick what are you up to today man well i'm just home doing office work in front of the computer yeah. uh well that's uh exciting <laughs> <laughs> yeah not really right? <laughs> what is the office work is it uh, have to do with deer yeah always uh always doing something related to deer that's that's my profession and my passion so i'm mm-hmm. pretty lucky yeah how'd you how did you how did that become a passion for you well i grew up in north central iowa uh with a, a love for being outdoors either hunting fishing trapping hunting fishing or hunting you know one of those <laughs> seven or eight things i was always <laughs> doing so uh my first love, though, was, was pheasant hunting, and uh, then in high school, I picked up a bow and arrow for the first time and started bow hunting whitetails, and I had shotgun hunted them before that, but once I started bow hunting and chasing whitetails and the small woodlots of north central Iowa, oh, it just was so intriguing and, and so challenging uh, that I, you know, I just forgot about everything else and, and dove into deer from mm-hmm. then on. So. Yeah. That's awesome. That's uh, you know, I was actually going through some of my fi- uh, some files that my mom has kept over the years of uh, just you know my paperwork from school or artwork or whatever. And I, I know I've always <clears throat> loved deer and wildlife, but I didn't realize like how how much I loved it when I was younger. I found some stuff from a long time ago. I was young, where it's just like this immaculate picture of deer and raccoons and birds and like I, it, no telling how long it took me to draw this stuff you know like it would have taken some focus for you know a nine-year-old me to 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 do that and and uh I started kind of I was going through this stuff kind of laughing at myself like I can't <laughs> believe this is uh I've, I've kind of forgotten that I how much I love these things you know like so it's uh it's definitely something that's hard to explain um you know once you get older like you know sometimes where it came from and why you have this passion but you know yours turned into a um a educational experience as well you you have a i guess a doctorate uh that's allowed you to kind of work in the biology field correct yeah i got a a, a bachelor's degree from iowa state in fisheries wildlife biology uh, graduated way back in 88 Moved to Kingsville, Texas to pursue a master's degree in range and wildlife management. Finished that in 91 and then went to the University of Georgia to get a PhD in forest resources with an emphasis on wildlife management. And and for both my master's project and my doctorate project, I worked with whitetail deer in South Texas. Mm -hmm. Do they talk about... um 
in that forestry program, do they talk about mesquite country much? About mesquite country? Yes, sir. <laughs> no, but that's where my research took place. Mm-hmm. You know, Georgia um, is uh, the the School of Forestry is uh, very well known, but it's it's for timber management, forest management, um, mostly with piney woods. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. and coming from Iowa, and then also from South Texas, living in Georgia for three years, that was a kind of a really unique experience coming from. The Midwest, and then also from South Texas, it mm-hmm. was very different. You know anything about uh, Blackbeard? No mesquites over there. Uh-uh. Yeah, <laughs> I know that. Yeah, I was uh, I was kind of in jest there, but um, do you you know anything about the Blackbeard deer? The Blackbeard deer, I, I know that there was a monograph written about them. Uh, <laughs> and I have that in my library, but other than that, no. Yeah, I really don't. Well, there, there's a I guess an island. Is it Blackbeard Island? It's off so. of uh, the coast yeah. of Georgia. Yeah, there, no, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and they're kind of a really small deer <laughs> subspecies or whatever you want to call it. I guess we joke about putting in for the draw for that hunt from time to time and just be uh, kind of a cool experience. Okay. But yeah, unique. Yeah, yeah, we all also hate mosquitoes terribly. So <laughs> it looks like a pretty skeetered up place down there. Uh, <laughs> did you uh, work closely with, with uh, Randy DeYoung? Any? Yeah, you know, uh, not for my master's or my, my Ph.D., but after I became the chief wildlife biologist for the King Ranch, I worked with Randy while he was getting his doctorate degree from Mississippi. Mm-hmm. His three study areas was the King Ranch. So mm-hmm. I was uh, directly involved with helping Randy to collect data on the King Ranch related to uh, – the DNA work that he did—that's cool. We had him on hundreds of episodes ago uh, for <laughs> okay. to talk about uh, parentage of white-tailed deer and yeah. genetics and stuff. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was a, it was a good talk. So that's cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. His, his research was some of the most groundbreaking research that's ever ever been done on whitetails mm-hmm. for sure. It's so. cool. Yeah. So um, you know, I guess was it was it Caesar Kleberg that brought uh, Neil Guy into the King Ranch? Is that right? Yeah, that's the uh, in the in the 1930s, King Ranch were inter, were introduced. I mean, new guy were introduced to King Ranch. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah, so that was something you obviously probably had to work with um, or work a, around or against or I don't know how, what your feelings are in in regards to that and how they interact with the white-tailed deer in that area, huh? There is some uh, some overlap, some dietary overlap. So there's a little bit of competition between no guy and white-tailed deer, but but for the most part, they're non-competitive, and so they're the two species work fairly well together, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, from a pure trophy deer management perspective, you'd rather not have anything else on the landscape that's competing with white-tails in any any form fashion, mm-hmm. right? Ideally, mm-hmm. so. Yeah. So is there, you know, I know like with hogs, we see a lot of times that hogs will uh, kind of be dominant around deer to the point of uh, taking some of the like preferred uh, habitat and or bedding uh, habitat. And, you know, they'll, they tend to kind of shift deer around when they come through and their sounders. And uh, is that something that happens with Nilgai and deer in that relationship? I've seen them graze fairly close to each other. Um, I think I think deer tolerate nilgai probably better than they tolerate feral hogs. Um, yeah, every, every anytime a hog comes through, whitetails usually you know uh, move off, uh, and that happens with nilgai too, but not to the degree that it does with with hogs. In my experience. Mm-hmm. 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 
That's neat. So, um, you know, I, I guess as the chief biologist there on the King Ranch, does that, does that make you, or did that make you um, only concerned with white-tailed deer um, in the production, or do you have to think about uh, managing nilgai as well and other species? Yeah, you know, the King Ranch is, is more known for its bobwhite quail population than anything else. And so I uh, I did a lot of things related to bobwhite quail management, mm-hmm. probably as much of that as I did white-tailed deer management while with the King Ranch. But no, it was, it was all game species that we worked with for sure. Um, we had uh, helicopter surveys where we counted just white-tailed deer, but quail cubbies, uh, nilgai, um, you know. And so we, we monitored uh, the game species, and then we also monitored to a degree some of the non-game species, too, mm-hmm. on the ranch. So you're you're monitoring the species, but you probably, I mean, did you, did you have to develop uh, management plans for each species as well? We did. I mean, we set uh, harvest rates for the for the lessees on the ranch and for the family members in their own hunting club. We we set bag limits and we set a, um, you know, uh, harvest goals um, for quail, for nilgai, for white-tailed deer, all of the above. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you? Like what precedence has been set in nilgai management? How do like how do you know what should be taken or what should be there? And then like what? And obviously that's um, there's a goal that has to be in mind as well. And where does that goal come from? Does it come from the family or is that from you? It, it the family's involved for sure in the management decisions, um, but we also the. The, the nilgai management was influenced by the cattle management on the ranch because there's a lot more competition between cattle and nilgai than there is between nilgai and and whitetail deer and and the overall uh, goal for the ranch while I was there was to reduce the nilgai densities and so I implemented minimum cow nilgai harvest um, harvest prescriptions. For all the lessees on the on the divisions where nilgai occurred, uh, and then we also uh, implemented a minimum bull harvest uh, quotas, uh, and then we also increased the amount of commercial hunting that was done for nilgai, and we also uh, increased the amount of uh, uh, the the USDA approved meat harvest for mm-hmm. nilgai that was done too. That's cool. Yeah. 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 Well, so, I mean, I, I, were you able to put like an economic value on how, um, I guess, how Neil Guy uh, compared to the cattle production on the ranch and, and which one was more valuable economically? Yeah, you know, with the Neil Guy, we had a, uh, we sold commercial Neil Guy hunts uh, that were guided by King Ranch staff. And uh, so, obviously, the ranch received income from those hunts, but it was not anywhere in the same ballpark or the same league as the as the, the money generated from the cattle. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there's no comparison between the two cattle. So, and I guess most of that is anything from Neil Guy. Most of that revenue is from uh, like guided Watusi hunts, right? And that where people are making the most money. 
We, we didn't have one. <laughs> no, yeah, uh, uh, uh. yeah, there were some wall and mammoth hunts that we did. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. It's so, good. so why why have Neil Guy if the if the cattle just you know outweighs the uh, economic benefit? Yeah, if you asked a cattle person, he would he wouldn't be able to answer that. He'd say, "I don't know why we have Neil Guy." Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, uh, you know, exotics offer uh, a great additional recreational opportunities outside of the. The, the normal fall hunting season, you know, because in Texas you can hunt um, species of no species of exotics, including no guy, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, you know, seven days a week. You can hunt them year round, and so they provide a lot of recreation outside of the standard hunting season, you know, mm-hmm. and so that's a big benefit there. Um, and you know, not everything's about how much money you make off things either, right? Mm-hmm. And so. Um, they were originally stocked on the ranch. I mean, uh, Caesar's thinking was that there wasn't any other species, any other big, uh, you know, um, well, there were cattle, but in between cattle and deer, there weren't any other species on the ranch. And he felt like the, the new guy filled a niche that was open, mm-hmm. um, between cattle and deer. Mm-hmm. And that's why they were chosen and that they were stocked there. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm with you on the you know, the, not everything's about money, but I just feel like when it comes to a big ranch in Texas, there's a lot of things uh-huh. about money. So that's kind of why. That's how I you know he wasn't actually born in Texas because Texans <laughs> would say everything's about money. No. You know, uh, yeah. Well, I was born in well, Texas, and I would agree with you. Obviously, um, bottom line matters on a private, privately owned ranch, mm-hmm. and, and finances are important. I mean, and so the. The, the, the cattle and the wildlife needed to pay the bills for the ranch, right? And mm-hmm. so that's why it's still a working cattle ranch today is because of the money that it generates, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, that was very important. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we talk about quite often on the show is the value of private land conservation. Because, you know, I'm sure you are very versed in the whole public land uh i guess advocacy nowadays and, and rightfully so so it's a great thing but i mean texas of course is the poster child for what you can actually get done on private land yeah the public access to that is not there but just that the existence of wildlife is very important right like how how was the king ranch able to uh you know do such a great job i mean outside of just employing you right but like you know like what are some of the the key factors in you know conservation of wildlife species doing so well there yeah the the folks at king ranch way before i got there were really innovative Uh, they were the first private private ranch to hire a full-time professional biologist in bell layman um, in the 1940s and uh, nobody had done that before then. So they reckon, recognized way back then the value and the importance of managing for wildlife. And uh, they started lease hunting honey, or leasing out the hunting rights on the Encino Division in the 1970s, the late 1970s. And, and by the time I, w- I arrived on the scene at the King Ranch, they, had a, they were leasing out around 400,000 acres uh, of the ranch to about Forty different lease groups, and uh, um, yeah, and and the revenue generated from that is pretty substantial. Yeah, for sure. Can you talk real quick about uh, for those who aren't familiar with the King Ranch, what uh, what the acreage is and what it's like, and and some of the division sizes and 
how that all works? Yeah, the King Ranch was uh, founded by Richard King. Um, it's 825,000 acres. At one point, it was over a million acres. Uh, it's now and has been for several decades at, at around 825,000 acres. It's spread across seven counties along the Gulf Coast of Texas, south of Corpus Christi. Um, there are four divisions to the ranch. Two of the divisions are contiguous. The, the northern divisions, uh, Santa Gertrudis and Laurelis, um, are connected to each other. Um, and then the two southern divisions are separate, uh, the Norris Division and the Encino Division. The Encino Division is the smallest of the four divisions. Um, if I remember correctly, it's around 110,000 acres, that one division. Mm-hmm. The, the Laurelis Division which also connects to the Santa Gertrudis division, but the Laurelis division, I think is around 377,000 acres. And it literally goes from the city limits of Kingsville to the city limits of Corpus Christi. It's everything in between those two cities on the North side of Baffin Bay. Mm-hmm. That's um, cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you haven't driven that highway and you're listening, it's, it's, that's quite a ways. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, a long it's, way. It's 18 or 19 miles. Yeah. Um, and on that division, there's also an 80,000-acre row crop field. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so golly. <laughs> Man, it's nuts. This so so cool. Is there a – I guess – I don't know if I'm using the right terminology, so I'm sorry. But is there a, uh, you know, a habitat difference in these? You know, I'm sure that when these divisions were created, it was probably – a lot more for cattle or whatever, you know, but is there like, do do each have their own separate biome or their, you know, their individual characteristics that you, you know, approach with a different management idea? Yeah, definitely. The the two Northern divisions have a lot more clay in the soil. Uh, The clay contents, you know, it's real heavy loam clay soil for Laurelis, which is why it's also the good farm ground. Mm-hmm. Um, none of the other three divisions are row crop farmed, except for a small part of the Santa Gertrudis division. The two southern divisions are within the coastal sand plain sheet, and so they're, they're a deep sandy soil, um, and you know some of the world's best quail hunting on those two divisions because of that sand sheet and that mm-hmm. deep sand. Um yeah, so there's there's big habitat differences among the four divisions. Uh-huh. Yeah, so the the sand provides um, brush like sand plums and stuff like that for the quail, or what's the why is the sand the, the area sand, the sandy sheet soil area the, the the brush the native natural brush occurs in in mots and mot pattern mm-hmm. naturally with a lot of grass cover in between the mots. And it, the two northern divisions have become brush choked. I mean, it, you know, 80, 90 percent of the landscape is heavy, thick brush. You know, it's not ideal quail habitat. But the two southern divisions, because of that sand sheet, it's naturally open. Um, different brush plants that are uh, and, and that mop pattern is just a natural pattern. That's how the landscape has maintained itself in and it's a, a lot better quail habitat as a result. And in the sandy soil, any kind of disturbance like hoof action from cows, that soil disturbance promotes weeds. And so there's a, just a flush of weed growth every spring. After every rainfall event, there's a flush of weeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, 
that are great. Most of those weeds are great seed producers for quail, mm-hmm. and 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 also attract insects for quail and for the quail chicks to eat. You know, um, and so it's it's just it's phenomenal quail habitat that right. sand country is. Sure. So. At 825,000 acres and one Mick Hellickson, how, <laughs> like, you right. you can't, I mean, there can't be a way that by yourself you're able to do this. I mean, what kind of team surrounds you there and how do you, how do you, I mean, just the paperwork involved and the different studies and stuff that you're doing, I mean, how do you keep up with all that? Yeah, it was a lot of work. I worked, uh, commonly worked 70 hour work weeks, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then during the hunting season, with, with guiding duties added to everything, uh, you know, I some, sometimes worked 12, 13, 14 days straight, too, mm-hmm. you know. So it was, it was a lot of work for me, but uh, we had a, we had a, uh, thanks to my boss, Butch Thompson, the wildlife manager for the King Ranch at the time I was there. He was the person that hired me. Um, you know, he allowed me to hire on a couple more biologists that that um, that worked for us. Uh, we had a biologist that handled the family country primarily. We had a, a, a biologist for each of the for for two of the divisions each, and then we also made it mandatory a mandatory requirement that all of the forty leases that they each individually hired either a full time, part time, or consulting professional wildlife biologists themselves mm-hmm. so when when we did our uh, population monitoring with the helicopter service for for the the buck doe harvest prescriptions we we provided those to our lessees and we required that biologists on staff that they also collect some really detailed harvest data that allowed us to monitor the effectiveness of our management program and to monitor the progress and and make comparisons. You know, we had full Boone and Crockett tours and every buck harvested. We had a uh, front incisor teeth pulled from every buck harvested for cementum annuli aging after the hunting season. We had a, uh, every deer had to be, uh, had to be weighed to provide either the live weight or field dressed weight. I mean, we implemented a lot of, uh, uh, harvest measuring requirements for quail too, in addition to deer and also nilgai. And we expected the leases to follow that, you know, and that's why we made them, you know, made the requirement that they hire a biologist. So if you can imagine, there was about 40, 40 or 50 professionally trained wildlife biologists working on King Ranch each year that I was there as wow. a result of all of that. So. Wow. so one of the things you're going to encounter after you have been doing some deer and data acquirement through the years is what do you do with all these pictures, all this information that you get uh, and... So, you know, <laughs> actually, Tyler was on the phone while I go, and I organized my desktop because I had windows everywhere, or not windows, sorry. What are they called on Macs? Icons. Okay. So, but, uh, and I had trail camera pictures and videos and all kinds of stuff on there. But, guys, there is a new solution. Okay. Moultrie Mobile on their app now has cloud storage. Okay, so you can take any of your trail camera pictures that you get from your Moultrie new Delta cell cams they just came out with or an old one or whatever and store that stuff on the mobile app on the Moultrie cloud. All right, I don't know if you all understand what that means, but like you take the digital copy and you send it out there into space and it stays there until you need it. Okay, that's the cloud. All right, so it makes organization way easier because you don't have to keep up with this stuff 
on your computer, on a hard drive, on the 38 SD cards that you don't know what to do with. Instead, it's just in this one place on the Moultrie Mobile app. So go check that out and go to MoultrieMobile.com. So your your guiding responsibility, is that a responsibility that comes with, like essentially, are you taking people and saying, hey, these are deer that you cannot shoot? And, you know, are you familiar enough with the deer that that's that's the case or why why are you guiding as well as a biologist we had uh, areas of the ranch that were that were designated as commercial hunting areas and so these areas were neither leased um nor were they hunted by the family they were they were for commercial deer hunting only and Mm -hmm. so and, and we needed that revenue to fund the wildlife department you know the and to the ranch's credit they wanted they wanted it, the the ranch to be run like a business, and so they wanted it to be self-supporting. And and so, when Butch became the wildlife manager, he he had the foresight to expand the wildlife department, added on three full-time wildlife biologists. We had an internship program. Well, we needed money to pay for that, right? And so, and and the couldn't just be from raising the lease fees i mean that money went directly to the family but so he he expanded the commercial hunting operation too mm-hmm. and um, everybody's responsibility was to assist with the guiding you know everybody wants to hunt during the peak of the rut right and so everybody was working really hard then doing hunts including myself including butch mm-hmm. um and then in the off season we we're we we're guiding new guy hunts um, on the family country, because the, the family members, you know, they're not interested in shooting a whole bunch of cow nil guy to reduce the deer density. I mean, to reduce the nil guy population. So we went in there during the off season, outside of the quail hunting season, and, and commercially harvested nil guy. You mm-hmm. know, got a nil guy hunt. Mm-hmm. So you're touching there on, you know, the whitetail stuff, and that I know that's kind of what your passion is. So. We've talked some about, you know, the ranch and stuff, but can you kind of just give insight as to why that brush country is such great habitat and resources for whitetail deer and why why you're able to grow really kind of giant bucks? Uh, what's the theory? Uh, you might be, you, you can tell me about this better than I can, but there's the uh, theory that things get larger as they leave the, or you head north away from the equator, right? And so that country down there is kind of an anomaly because you're able to grow large deer, both body and antler size, you know, kind of, uh, in an anomaly area. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm not putting this together very well, but yeah, what you're yeah. referring to is Bergman's rule and Bergman's that's the, rule. the yeah. general rule of thumb. Yeah. That body size increases as you move North from the equator. Uh, and it's thought to be for heat conservation primarily, mm-hmm. right? The, the surface of the body area, the, the surface to body size ratio, um, changes for heat conservation. And so South Texas being a lot closer to the equator than Canada and <laughs> the Midwest, you know, you would expect the deer to be a lot smaller. Um, and the body sizes are smaller, um, for native Texas deer. I mean, the, uh, most of the mature bucks on King ranch will, will feel dressed between 125 and 150 pounds. So they're not big bodied necessarily. Um, but they're big antlered um, on average, and and the biggest reason for that is because of the the tremendous age structure. Uh, there's just you know on the King Ranch while I was there, twenty to thirty percent of the buck population was made up of mature bucks that were five plus years old, 
You know, and you only find those kind of age classes, buck age classes in South Texas. You don't find them anywhere else in the world. Nowhere else mm-hmm. has that kind of uh, buck age structure, and it's because of the, the the lower harvest rate and the lower hunter density. You know, in South Texas, you're doing 96, 97% privately owned land. And, uh, um, and so... Uh, um, getting distracted over here, guys. Uh, <laughs> and, and that my podcast. Oh, I'm sorry. What is that dog doing in here? Sorry, guys. That's all right. It's fine, man. Yeah, we just had a yeah an, uh, an English pointer come into our house with a collar. It's not our dog. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody just, you know, an English and, and it came into my den where I'm at, and so my wife followed it. Anyway, okay. Uh, and so, uh, and then the, the, the second thing you guys hit on already too is the the habitat, the brush in South Texas. What's unique about it, and it, it's the the stem tips and leaves are are real high in protein content. But it's not it's not as ideal forage as you know soybeans and lab lab, but it provides uh, really an unlimited uh, base for the deer always to fall back on during time of drought and things like that. There's always that, that brush the baseline that they can fall back on. So deer never starve in South Texas because of you know nearly I don't know guys ninety percent probably plus of the landscape is brush covered. Mm-hmm. Unlike anywhere else, too. I mean, there are places where 100% of the landscape is is plant covered. You know, uh, national forests and national parks and things like that. But um, in South Texas, because the brush species, and there's so there's always that that baseline of brush to fall back on for the mm-hmm. deer to feed on. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they prefer to eat weeds. Is what they prefer to eat are forbs, broadleaf plants, um, non grass plants, and non brush plants is what they prefer to eat, but those are only available following rainfall, you know? And Mm so in between rains, they are eating the stems and leaves of of brush plants Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in South Texas. So, but the age structure and then the base of brush are the two things. Yeah. The light rain pressure allows for that buck age structure. And then in, in South Texas, more so than anywhere else in the country, people are actively managing for deer too. They're, They're planting food plots, but more importantly, they're providing supplements. You know, that's a that's a very common practice in South Texas where people put out gravity flow pellet feeders to feed deer manufactured deer pellets. You know, that are a complete ration, mm-hmm. and that that really helps to grow bigger bodies and bigger antlers too. Yeah. yeah. So um, with that, like, are you, if, when you're the chief biologist of the King Ranch, are you, do you know, um, or at least on specific leases or uh, areas of the, of the ranch, are you familiar with certain bucks or like, do you have, do you have a catalog or how do you keep up with, you know, what deer or what age and, and that kind of thing before they're actually killed? Yeah, um, you're you're guessing the age by looking at different characteristics on the hoof, you know, and, and uh, the a couple of the key characteristics to, to focus on are stomach girth, um, the, uh, the the juncture of the neck and the, and the, the the front of the shoulders, you know, how how deep that that juncture is, mm-hmm. uh, the the antler 
antler mass at the base is another good age characteristic to key in on. Uh, growth spoon and crockett score is is good. You know what you have to be careful of there is mistakenly shooting your biggest middle age bucks, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that's why you also want to use body characteristics like stomach girth and combination to avoid. You know, uh, middle aged bucks don't have big guts. I mean, it's it's the old bucks that have the big bellies. You know, mm-hmm. kind of like men. Um, and at least me included. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. My waistline keeps, keeps growing as my age goes up. Yeah. Right? You're not old. You're just mature. Uh, yeah, that's it. There you go. Yeah. Uh, and, and then now with the advent of the trail camera, you know, we've got, we've got individual bucks on leases that are, that are trapped from year to year based on tra- trail camera photos and, and, and observations where, uh, you know, what's it, Yearling bucks, you, you really can't identify when they're older at two unless they have some kind of unique color pattern to their coat or something distinctive about their body mm-hmm. because the antlers change so much from one to two that, you know, yearlings aren't really identifiable again at two. But once the buck is two, the main shape of his rack is developed to the point where you can usually identify that same deer from year to year following that. Mm-hmm. And so your biggest two-year-olds, and so, you know, you, you're going to, you're going to know at least two, if they have a bigger rack than a yearling, for example, and your biggest two-year-old bucks, it's going to be the first time they showed up in your trail cameras, mm-hmm. you know? And so once you identify your better two-year-old bucks, then you're able to track them until you, until you know, you've taken three years worth of pictures of them and then you know that they're five. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's one, one way. Yeah. Um, so on one division of the King Ranch, we were involved in a research project, the South Texas Buck Capture Project, where we were testing bucks at random by helicopter and net gun on, on two pastures of the Morales Division, and we were ear tagging, ear tagging bucks that were with ear tag colors that were color coded for age, right? Mm-hmm. So that allowed hunters, by knowing the, the tagging program to be able to selectively harvest bucks based on ear tag color but that's obviously not something you can do anywhere else under any other circumstance so mm-hmm. so, so instead we're following with trail cameras and then guessing their their age based on body and antler characteristics so mm-hmm. i have a question about antler characteristics there's the old kind of uh i don't know what you'd call it hunter's tail that uh a deer's antlers can swap sides uh sort of and still maintain some characteristics. So say this buck has a uh, drop time between G2 and G3 at age three on the left side, and then, uh, you know, you see it year next year, but the drop time's on the right side and everything's the same. Um, how do you feel about that? Have you heard that theory or have seen much about that? Well, with that buck capture project I alluded to, we, we, we captured bucks on the areas for seven years in a row on the king ranch and and we had a i remember the buck well it was a double drop time buck first time we put in and we tooth bear aged him at three well we rounded it up to three because we knew he couldn't be two but that's what his teeth showed was that he was only a <laughs> couple drops right so mm-hmm. we, we ended up calling him a three-year-old well we were able to recapture that buck um all the way until he was age seven. And one year he didn't have any drop times. Hmm. Another year he had a drop time just on one side. Another year he had a drop time on the other side. And, and so drop times and four 
and things like that, those kind of individual characteristics can fluctuate on the same buck year to year. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the general frame shape, um, the shape of the brow tines, length of the brow tines, I mean, you want to look at all those characteristics combined, and that usually allows you to identify that same buck from year to year. Mm-hmm. In this case, the, you know, the buck was marked with the microchips and and you know through, there was no mistaking that that was the same buck mm-hmm. yeah know? yeah sure makes well, sense yeah so i mean you must have like i mean how, how do you keep up with all that like that's i mean that's a lot of information do you have pictures of the deer and you know that just seems overwhelming to me i mean i guess with digital uh filing now it's not probably as big of a deal but maybe in the past back it was then, back then uh there was one wildlife biologist on staff that 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 really spearheaded the the commercial hunting operation, and he was the person most actively uh, scouting the bucks and identifying the shooter bucks, and and well, him and another full time wildlife biologist, those two guys together spent a large part of their work week, you know, identifying shooter bucks and, and following them, and you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. Now, for that that the bucks in that study, it, you know, it was fairly easy to follow those. But the rest of the ranch, no. I mean, and then on each individual lease, there's usually somebody there on that lease, you know, that that's that's following individual bucks from year to year based on trail cameras or blind observations or observations from the helicopter. You know, mm-hmm. uh, each each lease was kind of doing their own thing. Where on the on the leases where trophy deer hunting was important. Mm-hmm. You know, majority of the leases quail hunting was more important than the deer hunting mm-hmm. gotcha you know so so what was the what was the biggest deer you ever saw on the king ranch <laughs> uh, on the hoof um gosh it's funny they just killed a 272 inch buck there this past time <laughs> Golly, oh my goodness a, a 267 or 268 untypical it broke the ranch record by uh i don't know 40 40 inches or so oh, 35 inches how old was that deer the the guys it was killed on a on the santa gertrude at least that that surrounds the the Claiborne county airport the motus negris lease and it's the lessee's uh sugar operation out of florida and uh the, the wildlife biologist that's on staff there for that lease, I'm sure he had a good idea how old the buck was, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Man. Five, six, or seven. You know, to, to, to kill a buck like that, he's going to have to be five at least on the ranch. Mm-hmm. So, um, but hmm. yeah, the biggest buck I ever saw on the hoof, um, trying to think if I, yeah, well, we, we captured a buck as part of the study that was 199. Mm. And then that buck was, uh, harvested a year after the study ended and he was uh i think he grow scored 210 wow and Oof. so that's that's probably the biggest buck i i ever saw on the king ranch that's cool wow. you've seen a lot of big bucks uh from what you have observed what age do they have their peak antler performance yeah we've got great actual capture data to, to back this up and this is with no one age bucks only. These mm-hmm. are bucks that we initially captured as fawns or yearling bucks, mm-hmm. where you cannot make a mistake aging them by by, by tooth replacement and tooth wear. Mm-hmm. And so they're initially captured as fawns and yearlings, and then they're recaptured or harvested at, at 
at an older age, and, and we know the interval in between, so we know the age at the time of harvest or capture. And uh, statistically, there's no difference between five, six, and seven-year-old bucks in average growth pinnacrocket score. So hmm. antler size peaks at age five to seven. Um, there's not a statistical difference, but a, a numerical difference. There's the, the, the highest average scores for six and a half year old bucks, hmm. but it's not statistically different from the five year old or the seven year old bucks. So mm-hmm. five to seven is your answer. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's kind of, and uh, then, then the average growth spoon carcass score drops <coughs> off a little bit at seven and it drops off a little bit more at eight. The mm-hmm. average does. So gotcha. five to seven, it's hard to get bucks that old. Sure. Anywhere, yeah. Yeah. Know? And so, now, is that yeah. going to translate across the U.S., or do you think that, like, those big Iowa bucks up there, since they have, I guess, less limited resources, can they just continue to grow? Yeah, that's a good question. Nobody has the data mm-hmm. to, to answer that question, uh, except in, in, a, in a captive or penned environment. But in, in the, for free-ranging whitetails, nobody has the same kind of data that we have in South Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would guess it's the same. I would guess antler size across the Hills range peaks from five to seven years old. Now, uh, three and four year old Midwestern bucks can get a lot bigger than three or four year old South Texas bucks. You know? Sure. Yeah. And so the, but I think those those same bucks would be even bigger at five to seven, at three to four, right? Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Cool. But I, I guess maybe you're asking, do they do they peak at an? and uh i would i would guess no but there's not any data either way on that yeah so. yeah that, that's kind of you know it's just there's always these variables that are just kind of unanswerable you know that and that's kind of what makes them cool i think a little mm-hmm. bit you know it's why yeah. you can go to uh you know raymondville and shoot a whitetail and think it's cool and you can go to des moines and shoot a deer and think it's cool you know so <laughs> it's kind of kind of neat how they uh, can just survived so many different places mm-hmm. so uh you know you you like to spend some time in iowa every year um i guess uh, technically back home um is this um is this something you like to do because you like big deer you like lots of deer or it's a change of scene or it's back home or what why uh why spend time in iowa yeah, the answer is all of the above, but um, <laughs> primarily to be able to hunt with family. I mean, my brother and I co-own some some farmland in south southwestern Iowa, south central southwestern Iowa, Zone Four Union County, um, from Humboldt County, which is a, a one county south of the Minnesota state line. But that part of the state is real intensely farmed. It's about ninety plus percent of the landscape's farmed, and so there's deer there where i grew up or hunted almost to extinction each year you know and, and, and individual woodlots and river bottoms mm-hmm. so um but so go back up to hunt with my brother and hunt with family hunt with, hunt with friends that's a big draw but also hunting big free-ranging deer is also another big draw and and with our We've been actively managing our farm, and it started out with a, as a lease in, in, in southern Iowa since the mid-'90s. And so we've been working on this for 25-plus years, 26 years. We've been hunting the same farms and neighboring farms. And with our leasing operation, at one time we were leasing 
we were we, we controlled the hunting rights to to ten thousand acres in Union County, Iowa. You can imagine. Wow. You know what kind of bucks you can grow when you're controlling that much hunting rights, mm, right? Yeah. And so, but now now we we own uh, almost seven hundred acres, and we lease one to two thousand acres around that now, and that's what we've been doing the last ten or twelve years. And uh, but we're still really successful at you know at growing older age bucks and. We're less successful at killing them. It's really easier <laughs> to grow them up there. Yeah, we still have to grow them up there. But gosh, guys, I mean, uh, just because we we grow a five year old buck doesn't mean we're going to kill it up there. In fact, I think we probably kill I don't know a fourth or third of the big bucks that we have every year on trail camera. We'll probably successfully harvest only twenty five to thirty percent of those bucks. And South Texas, what's unique about South Texas is every buck you get to that size and age. If you really want to, you can kill it because of the five-month rifle cool. hunting season. Yeah. From a moving vehicle, hunting over bait, yeah. you know, all those things that are legal in Texas that aren't legal in Iowa means that, you know, if you grow a big buck on a ranch in South Texas and you want to kill it, you can kill it. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't translate to, to Iowa or the Midwest where, yeah, I think we only kill about a fourth of our big bucks up there. Every yeah. year. So a lot of big bucks go unharvested. Oh, that's there. that's kind of that's exciting. Crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's exciting too. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Well, so you 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 said a hot word will go, and we had to got to talk about this. We had you on the podcast. You you mentioned free range, and I know this is yeah. so subjective. And I, I would just like to have your opinion. Uh, if you go and set up in a in a stand, you know, overlooking a corn feeder or whatever it might be, um, at what size? How big does the pin need to be before you feel like the deer is untainted that you're shooting? You used a bad word there, calling it a pin. <laughs> I do that get you I'm going. Not, I'm not going to shoot any deer in a pin, no matter the size of the pin. So I'm just not going to do that. But but a high fence ranch. The, the, if the perimeter of a ranch is high fenced, you know, and I would never call it a pin. But uh, um, Gosh, guys, it really depends on the habitat. That's it true. It depends on the management that's taking place there. Mm-hmm. Because, guys, this is the truth, and I've told people this. And, but the, the 825,000-acre King Ranch is low-fenced. Every deer on that ranch is free-ranging, native, wild. But, guys, I've never hunted a deer herd anywhere else in America that was more gentle more easier to hunt, where the deer were more visible, more approachable. That's I cool. mean, guys, I, I stalked with my bow. I stalked a buck and shot it bedded at uh, under 30 yards so that he growth scored in the 180s. That's awesome, and, man. And the employee hunting club. But I can't imagine being able to stalk with my bow a buck in Iowa. I mean, it would just take a whole lot lot more effort. And mm-hmm. there would be a lot of times when I, when I came home empty-handed. I mean, it's just... And what I'm what I'm saying though is that 825,000 acre King Ranch has the easiest deer to hunt that I'm aware of anywhere, um, and that includes you know high fence ranches that I've hunted that are under 500 acres. They can be you can have deer in a high fence that are the wildest deer you've ever encountered. It all depends on the management that's taking place there, right? Yeah. And so yeah, um, but in general, you know, a high fence ranch in South Texas with the the hunting regulations that are in place. You grow a big buck, you can kill it, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it, and you compare that to hunting in the Midwest, it's a lot easier hunting. It oh, really yeah. is. I mean, hunting hunting from a tripod, you know, or a high rack with a with a, a rifle that you can shoot out to five hundred yards, you know, and um, 
and then having five months to do it and then being able to do it, you know, with the deer at a corn feeder or, you know, it's just a lot different. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have a friend who uh, went and uh, actually he's from up north and came down to shoot some pigs and kind of did one of those uh, 300 acre high fence pig hunts. And uh, he said it was like (laughs) the craziest thing ever because those hogs were the wildest, you know, scariest, spookiest (laughs) pigs you'd ever seen, you know, and it it, kind of like threw a kind of a wrench into like my thoughts about, you know, high fence hunting or whatever you know because like if you do it the wrong way those deer are gonna or hogs or whatever the animal is gonna feel highly pressured all the time (laughs) yeah 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 Hmm. but yep that's neat man so um so i guess you know as far as the the iowa stuff goes you um you guys are managing that property is this just a harvest management or are you um supplementally feeding uh, are you burning what what all are you doing there on the property yeah um on the land that we own uh we've planted over forty five thousand trees um wow we've converted <laughs> most of the row crop ground to to crp ground you know mm-hmm. that's in tall grass prairie uh plants and so we, we've done a lot of active habitat management we've got just a phenomenal food plot program, you know, and most of our hunting is done during the shotgun season up there. We have a, a few, few members that are bow hunters, you know, that are resident Iowans, but you guys probably know if you're not a resident Iowan, you're, you only get to bow hunt the state every third or fourth year. And mm-hmm. even though I own land in Iowa and I'm from Iowa originally, you know, I'm just a, just like every other non-resident, I have to, I have to, you know, gain preference points and put in the draw to, to get a buck tag. Right. Mm. So I end up mostly shotgun hunting Iowa because of the, the party hunting system that's allowed up there, you mm. know? And so what, what that all boils down to is I'm up there in early December hunting, you know, a month after the peak of the rut. And so our, the things that we've done to improve huntability up there, other than the habitat work are to, to have a, um, food plots that are at peak and attractiveness to deer in December. And so the, the, the two crops that are the three crops that work the best are corn, soybeans, and then uh, a turnip or a brassica or a radish. And so our food plot program involves those three and to successfully have standing corn and soybeans in early December, we, we have uh, electrical hot wires around all our food plots, excluding the deer until from the food plot, until about a week before the season, the gun season, then we'll we'll uh, take out the, you know, we'll disconnect the hot wires and allow deer to start accessing those food plots. And so mm-hmm. they're they're peaking. It's worked really well. I mean, we really suck in the deer in December <laughs> when we're up there shotgun. I bet you know? that's cool. And then with the habitat management done, and then by controlling the hunting rights, we're able to get bucks. Um, and then to the, our neighbors' credit guys over the last 25 years they've seen the success we've had um and they themselves have harvested lots of big bucks now most of our neighbors are actively passing up young bucks that are one or two years old um and in some cases some of our neighbors are passing up you know three and four year old bucks like we are mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so yeah and so it's become a neighborhood effort now too yeah it's really worked out well that's good we've killed, guys we've killed 18 18 net Boone and Crockett bucks. Oh, my. Mm, nets, baby. 
My brother's he's, he's shooting for a Smith one, you know, and so he got one that net one sixty nine. He calls that his fifth, but he's not quite there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, man, yeah, that's nuts. Fifty nine to make the award book and match it by an inch. Yeah, man, that's crazy. Yeah, that's uh, sounds like you. Uh, I mean, obviously your your uh, resume tells me that you know what you're doing, but it definitely sounds like you you're still on the on your game. Um, I, I really appreciate you doing this, man. This has been fun. We love biology and and just some of the cool stories that uh, entail around things such as legendary as the the King Ranch. Um, I have one more question for you. What is the most odd or weird or just striking thing that you have seen in the deer world in your time working and hunting? Well, that's a great question. And off the top of my head, I don't have a great answer for you. But I was I was on the phone with another uh, deer biologist that you guys probably know, Brian Murphy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> knowing well. <laughs> yeah, the former uh, CEO of the QDMA. Talking to him on the phone earlier today, and I had sent out a a slideshow to all of my my uh, consulting clients and then to really tell everybody in my folder, the email address book, that included a, uh, a photo from a helicopter of a, of a doe that had been run over by a, a train. She was laying dead inside the tracks of the train. And on this ranch, the railroad tracks run through about three miles of the ranch right next to a, a pretty well-traveled highway. And so I think what happened is that that doe got flushed by traveling on the highway into the path of the train. And I asked the ranch manager how often that happened. And he had seen, he had found four other dead deer last hunting season that were killed by the train. So <laughs> that was that was pretty weird to see yeah. deer killed by a train. And then it made me wonder with the manager's experience how often or how many deer die every year from, from collisions with trains, right? I mean, I never thought of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's nuts. Yeah. that yeah. Not something you would uh, – I don't know. It's just weird, I guess, you know, when uh, – especially at nighttime, they get a little light in their eyes and they just freak out. It's like – Man, you just can't trust a squirrel. You know what I mean? <laughs> a squirrel gets on the road, you just don't know what it's going to do. And and obviously a deer doesn't quite do what a squirrel does. But I think that sometimes uh, when you got two loud things on each side of you, it can be uh, overwhelming the senses, you know, for a deer, I'm sure. And I think, guys, that they probably run into the train, too. They're not just hit by the train, you know, by being in front of the train. Because mm-hmm. that, that probably happens less often. But a deer... You know, running blindly to get away from something, I can see it running right into a moving train, right? Mm-hmm. That because of the length of the train, you know, trying to get across and running right into a train. Yeah. So, anyway. Well, the first time I was in Iowa, I actually saw a deer uh, crossing a, tra- a train track. I got a picture of it actually crossing the train track. So apparently, the tracks don't bother them too much when there's not a train <laughs> on there. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool, man. Thank you so much for, for doing this. I know you're a busy guy, and you've got uh, probably all kinds of deer things that you'd rather be doing, but I appreciate you talking to us. Yeah, you guys are more than welcome. Sure. All right. Well, we'll see you soon, man. All right. Good to talk to you.
Well, let's keep this train a rolling. We're going to go. Uh, is that dad jokes because Father's Day is coming up? Is that's that right. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. why I did that. I'm a, I'm pretty good at dad's jokes. Dad is jokes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, y'all. Anyway, y'all need to go watch our YouTube where we can edit out all of the things that we misspeak. Um, this is, uh, this is a, a place that we are putting hunt breakdowns right now. YouTube. It's a uh, platform <laughs> where you can watch digital videos. Um, and they Videos. are free. <laughs> they are free. Um, and so if you go to YouTube and check out our channel, if you haven't yet, you can subscribe and you can watch Hunt Breakdowns, which we are releasing, which are uh, basically you and I just like gamer style watching the videos. And you can see how we react, what we're talking about. We can get a little extra commentary in there about how the hunt's going or what's going on behind the scenes that we didn't get video of. And then we talk about why we were successful or in a lot of cases, unsuccessful mm-hmm. in uh, that particular hunt. And then if we have a mount back from that deer, we show you the mount as well. Yeah. So they're pretty cool videos. Uh, they've been received well, um, except for people hate the fact that I legally, <laughs> I say legally <laughs> sat in a dude's stand. Uh, yeah. People do hate that though, but that's okay um, because I'm still within the law. I am not an outlaw um, and I don't play outlaw country. Um, Anyway, guys, go check that out. And remember, this is your element. Living it. Why not? (laughs) Why not? You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab, seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit markethouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E dot com. And use the code COUNTRY.